What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is blues guitar legend, five-time Grammy-nominated guitar player, singer extraordinaire, your friend and mine, Mr. Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Thank you very much for being on here. Oh, my pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me, man. So I, I'll just, I'll just, uh, how's it feel uh, being out of work for six months? <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. We were just talking about, it's like the first time I've been unemployed since I was a young teenager. Right. Uh, it's, so it's, uh, you know, it's weird. It, it, the, the good news is, 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 you know, I have a big family. My wife and I have a bunch of kids and it's enabled us to really have some serious quality family time and really connect um, where, you know, how our schedules are, right? So for me, the break and the real time to connect on a consistent basis with my family wouldn't happen until December and, you know, the winter months. And then I would finally get to have that time with them. Uh, but this has been a, a welcome opportunity to really spend some time with them. Uh, but, you know, I can't say that I'm not itching to go back out and play some live music. That's for sure. Is this the longest you've, you've, you've taken off from a live stage in your career? I would imagine. Yeah, it well, sort of, yes. I mean, it like consistently been home for this long uh, without doing anything. And so uh, when we had our first child, uh, I spent, I kind of like did the weekend warrior thing um, for like the first nine months of her life, actually, right. maybe even longer than that. And then for the first three kids, I kind of did that where we would just do gigs on the weekends and I was home during the week and I was being a father and, and all of that stuff, which, you know, I still am, but like at a certain point you got to go back to work. You can't do that forever. And right. so, uh, but this is like, uh, what is this? Like we're going on six, maybe seven months now, just like nothing. This is definitely the longest period of time for sure. I think it goes another year. I think we don't really get back to it. Maybe optimistically the summer of next year or fall, if not, we may have the entire year off again. I mean, it's it just until there's some sort of vaccine and some sort of consensus that, you know, we can hold gatherings of more than 100 people in a in a stadium. You know, it's mm -hmm. you know, it, it makes no sense to, to go out and do stuff like that. But tell me about, um, you know, we were talking earlier um, and, I, and I, I was on Mike Zito's show and, I, you know, I was in a mood. You know me. I'm a character. And I and I and I went on this whole tirade about I'm like, you know, I I, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear anybody's songs about quarantine blues. I don't want to hear lockdown blues. I don't want and, and 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 so I just asked him, so what are you working on? He goes, Well we just we just released a song called Lockdown Blues or something. <laughs> like, oh right after I'll, you I'll said listen that? to yours, Mike, yeah. Uh, you know, do you feel that I do, do you feel like like you don't are you like finding yourself more creative in this in 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 in, in your the absence from a live stage or are you like me going i barely picked up pick up the guitar if i don't have to yeah i'm not i haven't been well when i'm home in the first place it's hard for me to pick up the guitar because with six kids uh and you know the the responsibilities that i have here it's hard to, to find a lot of time to play guitar and if i do pick up the guitar I don't know why, but they all just like start, they hear it and they come running and they come and they climb all over me and they try and take the guitar away from me and they want to bang on it. And so it right. doesn't generally work out anyways. Um, but yeah, I haven't really been playing too much guitar. The good news for us is that we were in the studio and just finished a new record right before they locked everything down. 
So that kind of has taken some of the pressure off to have to try and be creative while I'm at home right now. Plus, it's like I, I kind of agree. We're all kind of suffering through this. I don't think anybody's totally happy about having to stay home and uh, be locked down. Um, so I, I think that like I, I just have not felt inspired to write any songs that pertain to that. If anything, if I was going to write some songs, I'd try and write something furthest away from that to try and give people an opportunity to think about something else, you know? Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, we, we just did a pay-per-view uh, uh, event at the Ryman in front of zero people, but there was 2,000 cardboard cutouts. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be a snapshot of what, how weird 2020 is, right. you know, because yeah. it, you know, song was, song would end and be like, it was just crickets, you know, and I've right. done that before in front of actual people, but that, <laughs> that but you know, it, one of the things that, um, I think um, about where we're headed is, you know, it's going to be who has confidence to come back to a to a concert. I know there's going to be some people that are going to come running back, and then there's going to be some like fans that have been 20 years, you know, going, I'm not going to anything, you know, I want to go to see the Jimi Hendrix experience if they reunited, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's gonna it's gonna take a while, and I, you know, tell me. Nobody about knows. There's no real date. Nobody has a firm date, so we're just kind of all in a wait and see. We're in a holding pattern. You know? Yeah, and the other thing is too is is nobody knows definitively. I, I you, you talk to some people and they're like, "Well, this is exactly what's going to happen." And this, I'm like, "You don't you don't really know." Well, you know, it's interesting. Is like I'm always you always have these uh, conversations with people. You do interviews. They're talking about album sales, and they're right. like, you know, have you adjusted to the way the music industry has changed over the years and the fact that people don't buy records and they stream or you know they get it for free or whatever and and. Uh, and I always thought, you know, the saving grace for bands like ours is the live show. It's like, yeah. you know, that's one thing that I could not ever see. We all enjoy a good, um, you know, live DVD in the comfort of our own home. Or now there's these streaming things. But ultimately, like being there in the audience is it's for some people, it's a spiritual experience, you know. And yeah. so I just I racked my brain. I'm like, okay, so the, they found a substitute for buying records and it's the internet, you know, and getting it that way and consuming it on your phone instead of buying a disc and putting it in the player. But I, I never could, I racked my brain, I never could figure out a way that they could substitute the live performance. I never would have thought that something like this would happen to eliminate it completely though, you know? Right. It's like, it's gone right now. It doesn't exist. Yeah, and you know, I... I, I... I, I again, I'm Mr. Clickbait. I I don't I don't really agree with the ones that that rushed to Instagram, rushed to YouTube, and started doing basically you know they're 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 out there like dancing for nickels you know on Instagram going hey if you like this please donate. Now I understand the financial pressures of of where everybody's at, and I understand that that it's a real thing for people. And we've been very lucky in our careers, right. but I think it also cheapens the brand if you're doing you know if you're playing in your pajamas. It, it, it kind of takes the mystique away from from, you know, what people see on stage, because what people see on stage and the way it plays, it's it comes off larger than life. You know, if you're just sitting there, you know, you know, in your house and everybody could, you know, and, and everybody's crafting their book selection behind their heads. You know, it's like the show right. that they're well read. And I, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't really want to yeah. do that. But anyway, tell me about. um I know this is not guitar related, but um, people are interested. I, I just went through about a three month diet, and tell me how you lost the weight because you lost you lost a bunch of weight from the last time I, I saw you. And I think people are like generally interested because 
being off for six months and cooking at home and, and being bored and depressed tends to pack on the pounds. How, how did yeah. you do it? Well, for me, so it wasn't, I've never been a, a heavy guy and I've always uh, been a real skinny guy. Like actually when I was in school, uh, in grade school, I got teased about how thin I was. Right. Right. Um, ended up working out okay in the end because right. 43 years old and I never really blew up that bad, but I, but I, I went and got a test. So I, I got this test um, on the recommendation of this nutritionist that my wife was working with. And because my wife has had six children and, and it's unbelievable, like the way she looks and what she has done with herself and, and working with this nutritionist. And so this, uh, there was a scan, it's called a DEXA scan. I can't uh, tell you all the ins and outs, but it tells you your bone density. It tells you the amount of body fat content you have, lean mass, uh, muscle mass, all of that stuff. And it was like a two for one special kind of deal. So I, I got in on the deal, right? I took my wife to get it done. I got it done. And, uh, and then she read my results and she was like, oh, well, there's some things here, you know, and there's this uh, internal fat that your body stores um, and that you can't see, you can't touch it, you can't feel it. And no amount of exercise will get rid of it. It's purely diet related. And she said, if you took the amount of fat that is in your body and laid it out, it would be it was some ridiculous distance, you know. Right. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she said it. She said it sets you up for heart disease, diabetes and all these kinds. Of so anyways, uh, I decided, you know, what do I have to lose? Uh, and I started working with her. Her name's Samantha Jackson. She's in Australia. Um, my father-in-law had worked with her when he was losing weight for some roles in some movies than my wife. And I started seeing all these amazing results around me and I gave it a shot. So I started working on her uh, diet program and, uh, and then I started doing the exercise program that she gave me that I could do while I was traveling on the road with resistance bands and stuff. Right. And man, I've just never, I'm 43 years old and ne I've never been in this good a shape in my entire life. And it's a hundred percent, um, from working with her and her knowledge. And she just does it all remotely. You know, she gave me the plan. She gave me the outline. She gave right. me, us the recipes. My wife's a saint when it comes to taking care of me and making sure that I eat what I'm supposed to eat. And she's really good at it. But she even gave me a guide to, when traveling on the road. She was like, here's your restaurant guide. If you go to this place, you can order this, this, or this, but you don't want to order this, this, or this. And, yeah. and I just followed the plan and I got the results, you know? Well, you know, like I used to travel with those books, um, eat this, not that they had a mm -hmm. supermarket one and they had one for a restaurant and you'd be surprised. Like, like if you went to like a, a chain restaurant, like a, a cheesecake factory or whatever, and you go, I just had the Cobb salad. I don't understand why I'm gaining weight. Well, if you look at the calories and fat in the Cobb salad, you were better off with the fried chicken or the burger and fries, you know I mean? It's, right, right, right. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's just having that knowledge, you know. I, I lost 15 pounds, and the way I look at it is if I pick up two, if I pick up two strats mm -hmm. and just hold them, and then right, hold right. them all day long, go up the stairs, walk around, you know, you go, wow, that, that's what I was carrying around for right. just on me, you know. And, you know, I've, I've always struggled with weight because I'm just – I'm Italian and we're, we're predisposed to that kind of thing, but it, 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 it is definitely, once you commit yourself to it, it becomes a lifestyle. I mean, like, mm -hmm. I mean, you, there's no, there's like, well, you lost all the weight, you got in shape. You don't go back to your old ways of doing things. You go, you, you keep it going, you know, and, and it's you try it, to, for sure. Yeah. You know, um, none of us are, uh, none of us are perfect. And, uh, no. You know, I've had my moments like I had a surgery in March and then I couldn't exercise. I mean, I just got to where I started exercising 
again without feeling some kind of discomfort and stuff. So, you know, in the midst of all of that, uh, you know, I've eaten some things that maybe I shouldn't have eaten, you know, so it's, yeah, it can right. be a slippery slope, you know? So, you know, I always say to people, I say, cherish the years that you have a three in the first number. Mm-hmm. Cherish. Yeah. yeah, right. You know what? I, you have a four. Since I've turned 40, I've had two surgeries. I've had lumps come out. It, it, I'm like, it, it's like, I don't feel any different than I was when I was 39, but things start going wrong. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's for sure. My mo- my motto on the road <clears throat> in catering, we would come in and I would see like certain guys in the crew or the band with a big piece of cake or right. something like that. Back to the food thing is my whole mantra is, is it worth it? Like if you think about the amount of calories that is sitting on your plate and the amount of effort it's going to take to burn that off and right. then based on how good it tastes, is it worth it? And so I'll just walk in the room and I'll see a guy eating the thing. And because I'm genuinely, if it's really, if it's good and it's worth it, I'm going to have some of it. Right. Absolutely. And I'll, and I'll say, Hey, how's that? And they're like, Oh, it's good. I'm like, is it worth it? They're like, probably not. And I'm like, okay, I'll move on. But if it is worth it, I'll have a bite of it at least, you know, you one of the things people always tell you, like, it's like, well, you can eat, you, it's amazing. You could probably eat what you, what you want all the time. Cause you get up on stage and you burn it all up. That's not true. Because right. at a two-hour show, yeah, you're burning calories. But I, I used to have a trainer, and an hour with with with, with her, mm-hmm. I was way more wiped out than the stage. And I'm like, well, how many Definitely. calories do you think I burned? She goes, maybe four or five hundred. I go, that's it. I know, right? <laughs> that's it. Four. I, I thought it was four or five thousand. I, yeah. I, I thought it would be, you know. Anyway, you know, um, tell me about the new signature strap, which I texted you when I saw, and I go, ugh. Clever, clever with the bound neck and and I I just think it looks killer with the matching Thanks. headstock and what what is that is that out yet? Yeah, so uh, we just started. Um, I think pre-orders happened a couple weeks ago. They're starting to get into customers' hands. <clears throat> I think uh, it's I mean literally like the first production run that the units that they had made up for the launch just sold out within like minutes, and right. so now they're catching up uh to the need like i went and checked the site the other day and it still says you know notify me when available so uh the reaction's been really great so my goal when creating the guitar obviously first and foremost is a great sounding great playing instrument right and so for me like the best playing strat that i've ever played uh is my 61 strat and uh, the biggest part of that besides its sound is is the feel of the neck. And so every guitar that I've built with Fender over the years, starting back to the 1990s, the goal uh, in the in every neck of every guitar that I own that we've built together has been to try and recreate, you know, some of the elements of that neck on my 61. This is the closest in profile and shape and feel that I think we've ever gotten. Right. Um, and then, you know, to make a great sounding guitar, the pickups are a huge element. And so on my last signature model, we had worked for like two years almost developing the sound of those pickups. So we started with that as a foundation because I was really happy with the sound of those, but we wanted to update them for a new guitar. And so uh, we kind of made them hotter across the board, but, uh, but still maintain clarity and made them quieter. So they're, they're hotter, they're more responsive, they're more articulate. Um, All the nuances of your playing come straight through, but they're quieter for a single coil and uh and there's no muddiness in the tone so they're very clear and uh, so anyways then you know we started i I figured today 
in today's world, it's like when you and I were kids and mm-hmm. the first signature guitars came out, yep. you could go into the music store and you could walk in and you'd see a Clapton signature Strat and a Jeff Beck and Robert Cray or whatever. They'd all be hanging on the walls. And Ink Bay? Yeah, the, all of them. With the funny neck, yeah. And if you wanted to check one out, you could go see it in person and you could pick it up and play it. But nowadays, you, that's not as common anymore. You, you don't see those instruments on a regular basis hanging on the wall. So most people are virtual window shopping. You know, right. you need to, you're going to see it online. You're going to read about it. But the first time you're actually going to experience the guitar is after you've already bought it. So I felt we got to have a compelling instrument here, you know? And so I, I like to be a little bit controversial. I, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I consider myself a purist in some ways and then I, I and then not in others. And so in the strat world, I knew that the block inlays would probably uh, offend some guys. And right. but to me, I thought it would be very I thought it'd be a stunning addition to the guitar and they're functional and aesthetically pleasing. Like they're really nice looking. But when you're in a, on a dark stage and, you know, yep. the LD hits you with the, that combination of lights that kind of makes the dots disappear, you're going to see where you're at with those block inlays. I mean, you know that from a Les Paul and things yeah. like that. And, you know, I mean, again, it's just like, you know, Fender made a few strats were bound necks and blocks. There's a couple, right. you know, you know, back in 66 is when you normally see them. Ry Cooter, the, his famous Sonic Blue one was mm-hmm. was bound. And, you know, that's the thing about, you know, you want to give the customer something different. You know, right. it's a, it's called a signature guitar for a reason, you know, right. and it's like it's like if somebody goes, oh, I, I'm offended by the block, well, then just buy a regular Strat. Stop, right. you know, like, stop wasting my time, you know. Right. Well, I like, you know, I like every guitar that I've built in recent memory. I mean, you you do this with your guitars. You name all of them individually. Pretty much. Uh, yes. So you give them their identities, you know, by yep. naming them. I uh, have always kind of been short on names, but quick with design. And right. so I want my guitars visually to have their own unique identity. And so the minute somebody sees this guitar, they know it's not your run of the mill Stratocaster. It's something different, something unique, something special. And if they have heard about the guitar, then they know it's Kenny Wayne Shepherd Strat. Um, but the design cues, the binding, the block inlays, the matching headstock, the ash body that's chambered to lighten it up and make it more resonant. Um, and we took a, co- a factory color because I didn't want an off-the-shelf color. Again, it's right. like I wanted this thing to be unique. So we took a factory color and manipulated it into a custom color and made a translucent sonic blue. So all of those things combined. And, I, and the thing is, it's like I wanted it to be unique, but I didn't want it to be so out there that it would alienate people like what is this this isn't a strat so right. we made it just unique enough to where it like piques people's interest all the things have a reason for being there everything is functional and looks good um but i think that we also stayed true to elements that have been incorporated in stratocasters over the lineage of the instrument right. you know? And, you know, I mean, the thing about, um, you, you know, because I've, I've seen you show a bunch and, and you play those guitars as as people can buy them off right. the shelf, you know, because but, but the prevailing narrative would be like, oh, you know, it's like if, if I sell if I sell a signature Les Paul, well, Joe's has been hot rod. No, right. same pickups that you get, you know, right. right, you know, and and it's because at the end of the day, I just want, you know, I always go for turnkey. You know, just like, hey, you can just plug it in. This is this is the amp. This is the right. twin with Fender. It's the same amp. I just crack right. the box and go. You know, exactly. I imagine it's the same with you. Well, yeah. I mean, if you put your name on something, 
You know, right. it's like you you don't I, I don't want to put my name on something that I wouldn't pick up and play instantly myself, you know. And so when we did the first guitar, the the whole that one was made in Mexico. The whole point of that was to make it affordable so that right. young people could realistically be within their grasp. But, you know, I remember at the time they were like, well, you know, we, we'll make a couple of yours at the custom shop. And I'm like, no, man, I don't want ones from the custom shop. I want to play ones that are from the factory, made in Mexico, exactly the way the people are going to be buying them. And that's what I'm going to play on stage because otherwise, I, I don't, if, I, if I'm not willing to play it, I don't put my name on it. Right. And I think that that's, that's how it should be. Yeah, I mean it's it's the same. What uh, what what makes you gravitate towards the rosewood neck? Because I, I you have you have you have I know you have a '59 hardtail. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had to do a little anorak when I posted on Instagram today. Grab my '59 hardtail and whatever. But um, right. the the and I've seen you play the maple neck. But most mm-hmm. of the times you you gravitate towards the rosewood. Is that just a is that a sonic thing or is it a feel? It's a feel thing for me. It's uh I mean sonically yes I can I can definitely hear the difference. You play. A maple neck strat definitely sounds brighter. Yeah. Um, the rosewood, what I've noticed about it is, is, so it all started my very first custom shop strat that I ever bought with my record advance money when I signed my record deal. Right. And it was a 54 custom shop. I don't know if you call it a reissue because, I mean, it did. It was like a Mary Kay colored guitar, had this flamed maple neck, and uh, it was, you know, it, but it had the vintage frets, like little bitty fret wire on it. And it was a nightmare to play because because the lacquer that's on the neck of the guitar and the low and the the small frets was just slowing me down. It was yeah. like too much friction between my skin and the fretboard, yeah. you know. And I never found that with rosewood. And so I, there is a solution. I mean, you put jumbo frets on anything, you get enough height and enough, you know, enough to grab onto. Then you know, it kind of helps eliminate that. But that's the deal. I, you know, my 61 is Rosewood. Most of my guitars are Rosewood. I have a 58, a 59 hardtail. They're kind of like sister strats and they're both maple neck guitars and they're cool. You put the jumbo frets, that's better, but I don't know something about the feel of the Rosewood just feels better to me. Yeah. Tell me, um, you know, when you, when you first got your record deal, uh, Irving Azoff signed you giant yeah. record. And, yeah. uh, you're how old, how were you? It's like 15 or 16. So, yeah. They sent a guy out, um, to see, to kind of uh, scout me, I think when I was about 15 and by the time, uh, you know, I basically the rumors had gotten out. So like I did some demos, I, I did some demos when I was 14 and we were passing out cassettes to people yeah. and uh, some record executives had come to town to meet with Stan Lewis who owned Jewel Paula records. And he had a bunch of old blues masters and Stan is like, he's like a Leonard Chess of, of the South. Right. And so him and Leonard Chess were really good friends. So they were coming in. It was uh, the guys that formed uh, A&M Records. Uh, and so they had come down and they were interested in buying his catalog for their publishing company that they were put together. And while they were there, he calls my dad. He's like, you need to get Kenny Wayne down here, man. And I got these guys in here and they need to hear his music. So we came and we played them my cassette of my demos and they listened to it and they're really excited. And they were like, we'd love to sign you, but we don't have a record company right now. We're doing the publishing company thing. Right. But they took the cassette with them back to California. And then from there, the word started to spread. And somehow Irving's office heard about me. They sent a guy down to catch one of my shows. And then the next thing you know, they flew me to Atlanta to meet with him. And, you know, for whoever's watching, Irving is like, you know, he's legendary. He's like, he's like a Clive Davis kind of guy. Yeah. He's uh, arguably the most powerful guy in the music industry, but he managed the Eagles and, you know, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, it's just all amazing 
uh, uh, roster of artists. And so he signed me personally when I was 16. By the time we got the deal done, I was 16 years old. And, uh, you know, I guess the rest is history. Well, I mean, Irving, like Clive, you know, and, uh, and, and, a, and a few others, has the Midas touch. Every, everything he, he gets involved with, he sees it. I mean, like, you know, you, you know, present company included. I mean, like, he saw it. Next thing you know, you, I mean, two years later, you have number one radio hits. You know, right. and we're touring with the Eagles and Van Halen. I mean, like, how, how crazy was that to be thrust into, like, hyperspeed? Like, from, from playing with the late, great Brian Lee, rest in peace, wonderful man, um, in New Orleans, all of a sudden, you're opening up for Van Halen at the Hollywood yeah. Bowl. You know, you're like, yeah, it was hell? pretty crazy. But, but at the same time, I feel like my, you know, youth was on my side. Like, I, really, to me, dude, all it was was, like, I get to go play guitar tonight. Really? Right. Awesome. Yeah. Somebody's going to pay me better. You know? Right. But right. like, it was really like just yeah, getting out there and being able to play guitar. It was almost like I didn't have enough time or maybe I, I was so young that I didn't have enough sense to realize like I was in uh, playing for 80,000 people three nights in a row at Wembley Stadium, at the old Wembley Stadium, you know, opening for the Eagles right out of high school. And so it's pretty incredible stuff. But, I mean, ultimately, you know and I know that, like, the music has to speak for itself, you know. And so, yeah. like, the, the intrigue, it was great to be a child prodigy. And that kind of piqued people's interest and got people talking. But I think if they showed up and the music didn't live up to the hype, then, you know, it would have just been a flash in the pan, you know. And... Thankfully, uh, a lot of guys from our generation that came along doing this timeless genre that we do right. have been able to have, you know, very long careers so far doing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know I, I, I always say, like, you know, um, you know, yourself, Johnny Lang, you know, I, I was in a band, Bloodline, and then I went solo. And there's like, you know, there's that, that group now, we're all like, we're all now in our 40s. And, you know, we've talked about this before is... It's like we were, I, I was always used to being looked at as the kid, like the kid right. guitar player from upstate New York. You probably the same going, you know, yeah. we're, you know, we're hanging with BB King and it's like, you know, we're like the younger generation. Now yeah. I see, I, now I, I, you know, through the advantages of Instagram and all this internet crap, I, I'm like looking at actual kids. And now we're, we're the older crop of 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 players and and people start calling me like boomer and shit and i'm like i don't understand what that means what is the boom <laughs> you're getting gray bonamassa you boomer i'm like what's that you know right but, but i mean what's it like to see you know a generation of players that are 20 years younger going wow you know this thing really does keep like bb always used to say just keep the music going keep the music on and, and you start seeing it again yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's like I, I meet these young kids just like I'm sure you do. And it like reminds me so much of my own path and my own experience. Right. Yeah. Like I can I can see them. I ask them how old they are, how long they've been playing. You know, they share with me, you know, oh, I got a band or, you know, whatever. And, and it's, it's just I literally instantly just teleports me back to like my experience as that guy, you know, right. And it's great. It's good to see because, you know, this is what has enabled the genre to be over 100 years old now. And this is what, what will also enable it to continue for the next 100 years. It's the young right. blood, just like BB used to call us, young bloods. Right. And, you know, bringing the fresh, you know, take on the blues and they're doing the same thing. My only um, advice to any of them is like, 
you know, if I had any advice besides practice and play with your heart and your soul, put, put, put your heart and soul into it is like, know, know your history, like look, go back. And, right. you know, if you want to start with Joe Bonamassa or you want to start with Kenny Wayne Shepard or you want to start with Derek Trucks or whoever, that's great. But go find out who we liked, go listen to their music, find out who they liked and go listen to their music until you get all the way back to the roots and the origins of it all and know where it came from. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's it's um, having that. Uh, I was taught very early on by a guy from the Washington, D.C. area. His name was Danny Gatton. And he goes, man, you know a little bit about the blues, but do you know anything about rockabilly? Do you know anything about, you know, jazz? Do you, are you hip to Hank Garland? Are you, and I, all of a sudden, my world exploded into this. Like yeah, I'm yeah. like, you go down all these rabbit holes. And to this day, I'm thankful that I had those conversations with him because if you're on stage or in a session or whatever, you're you're grabbing from those influences going, hey, this would sound cool if I did a little Hank Garland-like thing here. And you're right, just, right. it's... It, it's invaluable advice to you know to to know the history of 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 the music. Um, Blue on black. Mm -hmm. I asked you this in front of a live audience, and you had the greatest answer. Um, <laughs> it it was arguably, I mean that arguably, in my opinion, is the biggest blues song since the thrill is gone commercially. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when you um, when you wrote it with uh, the late Mark uh, Selby and Tina Sillers, um, hit songwriters themselves, did you know it was a big song? Right so we knew that it was a good song. Um, the moment that we knew we had something really special was mm -hmm. when we were mixing the record, and uh, we had recorded. That was a song that almost didn't happen. I, I, I think I shared this yeah. uh, when we talked about it before, but. That was the last song we cut before, you know, Reese and Tommy and Chris Layton from Double Trouble were all there in the studio. And it was their last day of tracking. And it was there. The car was waiting outside for them to take them to the airport. And they were like, Jerry was just like, one more, just one more time. It just doesn't sound right. We need you to do it one more time. And they're playing. And literally, Chris Layton is like playing the drums and he's standing up. <laughs> as he's playing and he's trying to run out the door because he doesn't want to miss his flight home. Right. Right. And so it lit. And Jerry was like, he, he ran. I, I was like, J do you think we got it? Jerry's like, I think we have enough, you know? Yeah. So we mixed it and it was this amazing moment. I don't really know how to describe it. It's just like, we were all in there and everyone in the room, the, the women that were in the room started dancing around and, and turned it up and, and by the end of it everybody was high-fiving each other and nobody knew what it was going to go on to do but we we knew we had something special for sure it, it's a you know it's the great it's those great simple songs you know and i think the reason for the reason that the thrill is gone was such a big hit it's the same reason why blue on black is such a big hit is because it's that perfect mix of of sophistication within the blues but but simple you know, and it says something, it gets to the point right away. You know, it's like, you know, that there's a chorus, you know, that's one yeah. thing about the genre that I always try to tell younger generations of people, anybody wants to listen to go, there's a chorus, there's a lift and it, and it, and there's a hook, you know, it's, it's just like writing a pop song only you're doing in the context of the blues. I yeah. mean, so when, when you have a hit like that, 
and you're out on the road, I mean, you must have been at every radio station at 7 a.m. with a damn acoustic guitar going, hey, come play that. Come, you know, WRIF in Detroit. Come, come play for us at 6.30 a.m. I mean, and poor, you know, you and Noah have to sing in the morning. Why do you think when you're on a, on a tour like that, why do, why do we have to showcase our wares? Why can't we just talk about the song and they play the record? Why do we have I to know. be in the studio? With it? They, don't let, they don't make actors act. They don't, I know. Uh, an author doesn't write a book in front of them on the radio. Like, like why is it different for us? I know we've we've actually had this conversation in private yeah. before. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's it's interesting. What you know what it was is like there was one artist at some point that thought, I'm gonna up the game, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna play this song, you know, and then all of a sudden it became an expectation. I mean, that's just how it is. It's kind of like social media. It's you know, I'm a I'm an inherently kind of private person with right. my personal life. So which is why I'm not nearly as good at churning out content on social media. It's like, I have to really like make myself do it because I just, I'm not wired that way. And so, but it's become an expectation, you know, celebrities, musicians, artists, like everybody feels that they have this personal connection with you through social media. So if you want to continue that contact, a direct link to your fans, you got to do it. So I think radio, it became the same thing. It's like at some point, Somebody did it. It got a big reaction. And, you know, if one radio station gets a special moment from an artist and it's a big artist for sure, mm-hmm. then the re- the other radio stations want it, too. And and I think it's just because, but I agree. It's like, you know, actors don't have to act at, you know, on, when they go on Good Morning America and they don't have to, like, act out a scene from the movie. They show a clip from it. But everybody likes live performances, you know. And inherently, they also they also they seem to like the campfire kumbaya moments, like where, like I I always describe myself. I'm an electric guitar player. I own acoustic guitars. Right. And I strum along a little bit on record, and may and I've done a couple acoustic shows, um, in Vienna and at Carnegie Hall, but I, but I'm an electric guitar player. So and then then they go well, let's take an inherently electric song and have you played on acoustic, you know. Right. But all those bends and, and you know, and you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't trans, you know, it doesn't translate. Yeah, I always felt the same. I mean, I, I, I'm the same. I, I'm more of an electric guitar player. I feel like playing on acoustic is fun, but it doesn't represent what I really prefer to do very well. But my dad, you know, I come from a radio background. My dad ran radio stations. Uh, he was a DJ, on-air personality, general manager, program director, the whole nine yards. And so... I literally like when I was a kid, I had moments where like the the wildest things, all these artists would come through town to be on my dad's radio station. Right. Because it's also like the handshake. It's like, oh, you come in, you got a show. We'll promote your show if you come on the air and help right. sell tickets. But we'll also play your songs more. And, you know, it's it's kind of like you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Right. But what's really funny is before I even had a band and stuff like that, there'd be people like like George Lynch came to my dad's radio station. Right. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm jamming with George Lynch when I'm like 11 years old, you know, and they, just like random pop stars, metal stars. I have like the craziest like uh, photo collection of right. me with every band that came through town, you know, whether right. it was like somebody like Aerosmith or Kiss or whatever to uh, 
you know, like there was like some soap opera star on the young and the restless, this guy, I can't remember his name right now, but like he had a big single at one point and then there's me with that guy, you know, right. it's, it's so bizarre, <laughs> but yeah, it's just kind of part of the deal with radio. And, and we always knew radio was an important part of our lives and we knew that it should be also an important part of my career. You know, what, what format was your father's uh, station? Everything. So like he was on multiple different stations when I was, when I was a before I was born, he was on the original K-Rock, which was K-R-O-K, not right. K-R-O-Q, which is in L.A. Right. And then he went from that to K-W-K-H, which is a legendary country station that used to gotcha. broadcast the Louisiana Hayride, which was like the Grand Ole Opry. Yes. Um, and then he went from that to uh, I think he did like some R&B for a while. And then when I so when I was a teenager. It was top. It was top forty for a while. Then it was active rock. Then it was mainstream rock. So they changed formats many different times. So like, kind of ran the whole gamut. You know? Right, right. So it's everything. By the way, um, I played the. Uh, I think it's called the it's municipal auditorium in mm -hmm. Shreveport. Yeah. And downstairs where they put the catering, there's tons and tons and tons of the original chairs, like the seats. Right. When they redid it. And I'm like the collector in me. I like, you know, I made friends with the guy who runs the joint, and they have a nice, they have a nice museum. And I go, hey, what are you doing with these chairs? They're like, well, Winona took a couple of pairs. I'm like, I'm like, can I, can I take them? Right. Next thing you know, I'm shoving like eight, eight of these chairs underneath the bus, right? right. And I still got them. And I go, listen, whoever sat in this chair, at one point saw Elvis play for the first time. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it's uh, the Louisiana Senior. Hank Senior. I mean, if those chairs could talk, I mean, they've, they've been wit, they've bared witness to some of the greatest, you know, this country can produce. Right. Anyway, that's a sidebar. You met the man. You met Stevie Ray. Mm -hmm. What was that like? I never met him. So I met him a few different times. And so obviously there's the famous story of when I was seven years old, my dad was doing concert promotion at the time. He had a festival, an annual festival. It was a fundraiser for muscular dystrophy for kids and right. uh so you know it's a big concert he did every year he booked stevie ray bond and double trouble to headline that year that's how i got to meet him was because my dad was the promoter right and you know stevie was really nice to me and you know it was right before he went on stage and i i got put over on an on an amp case on the side of the stage and i got to just sit and watch the show from the side of stage and it was like I was completely mesmerized. Like every time I ever saw him, I was completely mesmerized. But that was a life-changing moment for me. I loved guitar. I was totally into the idea of playing guitar. I had little toy acoustic guitars, and I would jump up and down. I'd put the Fandango, the ZZ Top Fandango album uh, on the record player in my grandfather's room and turn it up and jump up and down and play air guitar. But after seeing Stevie Ray play that night uh, for the first time, all I wanted was electric guitar and all I wanted was to learn how to play with that fire and that passion that he plays right. with. And then I went on several times, like the picture that you see floating around the internet uh, of me and him and my dad was the last time that I saw him, which actually strangely enough was like, I, I the date of the show where I first met him was almost the exact same date as the show where I last met wow. him. Uh, however many years later. Um, so anyways, and in that picture, what you can't see because it's cropped off, but that picture is hanging up in my dad's house is me. I'm holding my guitar. It's the headstock of my first Fender Stratocaster because that's the day that he autographed it for me. Wow. That's and cool. so, yeah, it's a really cool moment. And then I had an opportunity after that. Uh, we went and saw him play 
um, with the who in Dallas and we had backstage passes, but it was getting late. So we opted out of that, uh, going to see him that night. There was a couple of times after that I had an opportunity to go say hi to him and, and didn't, but anyways, he was incredibly nice, incredibly encouraging in that photo. He shook my hand and I felt like he broke his, his grip was so strong. I felt like he broke every bone in my hand. I was doing all I could to not just bust out in tears in front of my hero because right. my hand felt like it was crushed. And then, you know, he was like, Hey man, you know, you keep playing. Maybe one day uh, we'll get a chance to play together. And obviously that day never came, but um, you know, I feel like he, his heart and, and his spirit is in everything that we did. And, and all of us really at this yeah. point, you know, he was a game changer. I, I remember my father bringing home Texas flood around 1982 and he goes, I hear this is good. And he drops the needle. I'm like, there you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. And it was just yeah. like the tone, the sound, it, it, the playing. I, I think he's a very underrated singer. You know, yeah. I, I love the way he sang. And uh, right. tell me, you know, tell me about tell me about your amps. You 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 use you use these boutique amps by this guy named Dumble. Um, yeah. And um, how did how did they get on your radar? And um and how did you, you know, like go, well, this is this is the sound that I hear in my head and it's being amplified. I mean, because we all have that that sound in our head and right. and you plug into whatever and then, oh, this does it. You know, mm -hmm. how do you differentiate? Well, so, I mean, I think for me and probably for a lot of people, Dumble was on our radar because of Stevie, Stevie. and his association with those amps. And I have to say, like, you know, for the first many, many years of my career, I mean, I, I couldn't afford those amps, even if I had come across one, but I had never really come across one. I didn't come across my first Dumble until like 2004, 2000, yeah, 2004. And so, uh, yeah, it was like, I, you know, I wasn't chasing that sound. I just, but I had never come across it, one of those amps. And then when I finally did for the first time, I play, I plugged into it, totally objective going, huh, you know, I wonder right. if it's going to live up to the hype. And man, it, I was just like, oh my gosh, this amplifier is unbelievable. And so, you know, from that point forward, it was like, I knew that there was, there was legitimacy in the hype. And of course, you know, there's, wherever there's that much conversation about something, there's a reason for it. And right. so anyways, I eventually, um, was introduced to him through a mutual friend and, uh, you know, found out that he was a fan of my music and that, you know, he had, he owned the 10 days out documentary that we did and loved that. And, and so he had known about me uh, for a really long time. And so we finally got to meet and then we started, you know, he started building amps for me and it's like a tailor-made suit. You know, he, right. he listens to me play and, uh, and I think he knows what I want the amp to do. And he goes and he makes it, makes the amp do it. You know, it's just right. pretty incredible. You like a lot, you use a lot of clean headroom, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. Do you, you find that over the years, have you turned down or turned up on stage? So what I've done is I've turned up while turning down. So <laughs> I've brought, I used to use, I used to have three twins, black face twins, all on, all turned on 10 at the same time okay. every stunt. night. Yeah. 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 And uh, now what I've done, because I, my ears ring, uh, mm -hmm. Not as bad as I think they could, but they do always. There's always some noise in my ears. Um, and I've been trying to mitigate that. And also, it's like, you know, just realizing becoming a singer, you, you, you start to uh, 
you start to have sympathy for singers when you when when you thought they were being prima donnas before and they're yelling at everybody to turn down right. you realize that like they're really using an acoustic it'd be like trying to play an acoustic guitar over everybody else cranked to 10 through three twins you know right and they're struggling so anyways i thought it was in everybody's best interest to bring the stage volume down and so i've went from 100 watt amps to 50 watt 45 50 watt amplifiers and it gives me like he can build plenty of uh you know plenty of headroom into the amplifier but he also has the ability to build this amazing natural uh you know saturation and overdrive and this effortless sustain that that you can kind of coax out of these amplifiers so yeah i mean that's it i mean i, I used to be a really clean just on the verge of breaking up guy with the twins and then use the pedals to to do whatever i wanted them to do right. um but now I kind of have the luxury of letting the amp do like 90% of the work, you know. That's my favorite. You know, I, I use two 50-watt Dumbles and two Twins. And they're all set for stun. But I always say the thing about the Dumbles is each note is carved out individually as you play them. Whether you're playing fast or you're playing, you know, slower. And no other amp does that. And right. The thing about what people, like I've tried a Dumble and I, I didn't like it. Well, you know what it did? It showcased the flaws in your playing. Right, it does. And 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 then when you but but if you work on the playing side of it, they really do bring out the best and the guitar and the best of the player. You know, and and yeah. it's the the there's again like you say, you know, they're 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 talked about and 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 you know coveted for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about the rides. Steven Stills and uh, and uh, Barry Goldberg and yourself and it's like a super group, you know. Yeah, you know, we, yeah, I know, right? So we thought it'd be cool. Steven wanted to make a blues record. Him and Barry got together, started writing some songs. Then they, I don't know, they, I don't, they just felt like they 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 needed another guy, you know, for the band. My name came up. Steven and I had known each other for a long time. Right. Going to see the Indianapolis Colts play football, and so. But, you know, we never put two and two together. Like, we had met many, many times, and we had jammed many times. But right. I never went up and said, I'm Kenny Wayne Shepherd. It's just not my style. I'd be like, hey, I'm Kenny, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, so when my name came up, he wasn't exactly sure who Kenny Wayne Shepherd was. Right. And, and then uh, he has a funny story that he tells about being in Vegas and getting ready to play a show with CSN and getting the call about me and – and he's like, who? Kenny Wayne, who? And then he looks out the window and my name is like, comes up in lights on the billboard. And he's right. like, that'll do just fine. And then, you know. Look, he's so famous. Th yeah, then, then later on, he put, we put two and two together that we knew each other already and had played together. So anyways, yeah, I mean, it, it, it started off as like it was going to be like a one-off kind of thing. Let's just go make a record and have some fun and see what happens. And then, But we really enjoyed making music together and writing and recording and so we did you know we did the first album we did a tour uh then we did another record and then we did a couple of tours and then we've been talking about doing a third album and you know it's just a matter of like linking everybody's schedule up which i'm sure you know how right. that goes and uh and then you know the virus hit and so now everything's on hold but it's been a really fascinating experience steven my opinion one of the greatest american songwriters music creators 
ever. And so the opportunity to write and create and get a window into how he does what he does has been tremendously valuable to me. I live in Laurel Canyon and, and, and where my, where, where I am is probably a half a mile away from the, 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 the CSN house. You know, when, when, you know, when they first got together and it's like the epicenter of all that. And, you know, St- Stills always, you know, was in the was in the middle of it all, you know, from the Buffalo yeah. Springfield to CSN. And I think cut one of the greatest organ solos of all time. Love, love the one you're with. That's him. Right. Yeah. Nobody can touch it. I mean, you're like, like, it's like that's ink. I mean, like, oh, wow. I always thought it was like Mike Finnegan or somebody like that. No, that was him. He's a real multi-instrumentalist. There's like one of the most recent, a uh, couple years back, the latest, like one of the latest Jimi Hendrix uh, found recordings, you know, uh, was something that Stephen had stashed in his house and had forgotten about. He found right. it. And it was one night that him and Hendrix were hanging out and Stephen's playing bass. Yeah. You know, Steven still was on bass, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, Mitch Mitchell on drums. I mean, he, he's an incredible uh, musician all around without a doubt. And yeah, a legend. Um, before we wrap up, tell me um, about your collaboration with uh, a guy named Noah Hunt, who I think is one of the premier singers um, in the last 30 years. I mean, talk about identifiable voice and yeah. and just, I mean, is there's a cat that just makes it look easy and it's not. Yeah, he's a uh, so Noah, you know, Noah's my, the second singer. Well, actually, to, if we're going way back to my original band, right. I had a guy named Joe Nato, who was a guitar player and singer that helped me form the band and he was the original singer in the band then we had Corey sterling on the first album when we signed the record deal we were trying to find the right voice for the band and we found Corey. and then you know that we made a great first album we did a tour by the end of that tour pat our paths were going like this and so then the hunt you know was on to find another singer i everybody been pressuring me to sing from day one here's the thing for me and I had this conversation with Derek Trucks as well uh, years ago. I was like, does everybody give you as much crap about not singing as, as they give me? He goes, oh, I heard it all the time. And we both agreed that like the deal was is that we've got standards for our music and we're right. not willing to compromise those standards. So when I was a kid, I didn't have the luxury of somebody like Johnny Lang who sounded years beyond his age when he opened his mouth. Yeah. I had the ability to do that when I picked up the guitar, but when I opened my mouth, I sounded like a kid. Right. Right. And so that was not the voice that I heard from my music. And so I had no problem going, if I can't get the job done, if my voice is not up to my own standards, I'll find somebody who can, you know? So Corey did it. Then, you know, we parted ways. Then the search was on for the next singer and it became Noah. And, and I was gradually, I sang one song on the first album reluctantly. Then from the next few albums, I was did background vocals. And that was my way of gradually putting my toe in the water. Yeah. And and Noah, man, he's got, like you said, instantly identifiable voice, lots of soul. He's got his voice is really appropriate for the kind of music that I write too, because you know, he's got that southern thing, he's got the bluesy thing, but he's got like, you know, like a nice Almond Brothers thing going as well. Paul Rogers, he's got all these amazing singers kind of wrapped up in, in one voice. And he's like part of the family. He's been in my band now. Gosh, I can't even add off the top of my head, but I know it's been like more than probably twenty five years or so. And then I've gradually started singing more um 
as well. And so now we're kind of sharing vocal responsibilities, but it's really cool. It's kind of given us what I, the, you know, I look at it like more like an archangels kind of thing now, right? you know, where you have like Doyle and his voice and Charlie Sexton and his voice. It's like, and they're two very different voices. My voice and Noah's voice are very different. Um, and we share vocal responsibilities and we harmonize with, with each other at different times, but it actually has broadened our musical palette because there's songs that Noah can sing that I could never do justice. And then there's some songs believe it or not, that are just better suited for my style of singing as well. So, Yeah, and, and, and it, it, it's great to have options. I, it's having a second voice, having a foil in the music is always great. You know, that's, right. that's why, you know, it's like, you know, when we get together and do the band with Glenn Hughes, you know, he, he always encourages me to sing more. I'm like, listen to me very carefully. You're Glenn freaking Hughes. Why, am I, why do I even have a microphone? But right. he's right because it's the foil it's the it's the yin and the yang and it's like mm -hmm. too much of one thing or too much of the other if you, you can spread it out before i let you go i saw you on the tonight show sitting in with the the band and you had a white strat no big deal right. i don't know just is that was maybe the guitar that played the star spangled banner at woodstock right how did that play because i've had some good and bad experiences with iconic guitars like some that are like holy shit this is great and mm -hmm. Some holy shit, this is a piece of shit. You know, I don't know how anybody got any any sound out of this. Right. So that guitar was not a piece of shit. Right. <laughs> but it did not, it was not very friendly for me to play. Right. And the reason why is because it's not it was not set up for, for me. Yeah. And and I didn't have the audacity to start tinkering with it to try and set it up properly for, for right. me. Right. So I was even shocked when they showed up with the guitar and they had taken the original nut out of the slot and they put in a temporary nut because it had to be cut for right handed. You, you had know, to go back to, to right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So but they didn't glue it in place. So it's actually it was sliding around and <laughs> and uh, which naturally, I mean, that's fine. I mean, this is like a historical instrument. You probably wouldn't want to glue that in place. But it was, I didn't touch anything. So it was fighting me as I was playing. I played it on The Tonight Show. Then I played it later that night. Um, at the, I think it was the Beacon Theater that night. Um, and so I played it on stage. And, and it was great. I mean, the, it had a tremendous amount of vibe. I mean, the guitar was, was its own rock star everywhere it went, you know. Yeah. But as far as, like, was it easy to bend? you know did everything like fall right into place effortlessly as i was playing it it was like no there it was challenging to play but but i literally got to fulfill probably every single guitar player on the face of the planet's dream by playing that instrument you know absolutely uh, one, one of my prized strats in the collection i have a maple cap olympic white um uh, strat like it's it's the Woodstock guitar, you know, and I and I have the I have the Bobby Lee strap, the same that he has, you know, and it's like mm -hmm. I found this thing in Iowa and I was like on my deathbed. I had bronchitis. We were touring. It was a nightmare and I should have canceled the show in Des Moines, Iowa. But my guitar tech had found the store that the guy pulled one out of the back room. I go, we were in Chicago. I go, I go, screw it. We're going right. And I. <laughs> probably was one of the more dumb things i've done in my life but i had no business being on stage that night i was like uh, and could barely get through it but i got the strat you know and it's like you know it's everybody wanted that guitar because of hendrix you know right and yeah. and you know i mean i hendrix wrote the book you know he wrote the book on all that stuff and it just it 
you know, it's it's funny we're sitting here talking and it's it's 50 years later, you know, and 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 it still seems so relevant to me, you know. Yeah. And and it, it that's a testament to the timelessness of the music. Absolutely. Kenny, thank you very much, man. You know, we got to get together and, and and have a cigar. Yeah, man. After after this thing. Let's do it. And uh, thank you for being on. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Kenny Wayne Shepherd. This has been another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for watching.